Hello and welcome back to the Satisfaction Podcast for some some more talks on life, love, happiness, suffering, adventure, curiosity and a few things in between. I'm Evan Sutter, I'm an author, speaker, social entrepreneur and I know it has been a little while since my last talk. That was episode 23, The Queen is Dead and 13 Fast Ways to the Good Life, which was way back in September last year. And before that little detour, we were working our way through 12 ideas to construct a life worth living. And today and this season, I'm going to get back into these 12 ideas. And today we we start off with number seven. It is going to be a little bit different this season. There'll be absolutely no consistency to my talks. When you'll hear them and when I'll write them, I'm not so sure. And that's due to a new little baby girl on my end and a, and a new documentary project called Mind. So more more reason for you to subscribe to the podcast so you can uh, stay in touch and, and know when the next talk drops. Let me fill you in on Mind quickly before we get into today's show. Uh, Mind is an adventure documentary meets environmental call to arms and it connects the dots between the emergence of mine culture and the impact of mining and money on the Hunter region and, and far beyond. We will stand up paddleboard down the majestic but at-risk Hunter River some 400 kilometers to the Pacific Ocean and we'll use this challenging ultra paddle as a vehicle to show never-before-seen archival footage and have interviews with concerned locals, expert water scientists. We actually have one of the world's leading water experts from the Uni of Newcastle on board. We have environmentalists. You'll hear from politicians, uh, indigenous elders, and a whole range of different people who have been impacted by the rapidly changing landscapes and ideologies. And of course, we'll look at this concept of mine. And aside from being the site of mining, mine denotes private rights to use and exploit. Mine is a private concept. The river, however, belongs to the planet. It is a connection between the land and the sea. It is a site of a clash between the privately owned and the unownable. We've allowed private interests to treat what is unownable as it, as if it is theirs. So it's a big project, so stay tuned here as the project continues to develop and see how you can get involved as a partner or an artist or a collaborator at evansutter.com slash mine we already have starboard one of the coolest most sustainable stand-up paddleboard companies on board we have a few environmental organizations like heal and epic we have the university of newcastle and we have a really great crew and uniquely we are calling out, we're shouting out for artists to create a piece along the journey to showcase the beauty and vulnerability of our wild places or whatever your creative genius genius manifests. And we'll feature these, these pieces at one of our screenings and far beyond that too. So if you want to get involved, head to evansutter.com slash mine and stay in touch at evsutter on Instagram for more on the mine documentary. So that was a little bit of a long warm up, but we are now ready for today's talk. It is 12 ideas to construct a life worth living series, and we're on to number seven. And in case you missed it or forgotten, because yes, it has been some time, here are the first six in our series thus far. Number one, give up. Don't keep on chasing. Number two, collect experiences, not things. Avoid the unlived life. Number three, be careful who you listen to. Be careful who your heroes are. Number four, travel. 
and mostly your inner world. The way out is in. Number five, learn for life, not for a job. Never stop learning. And number six, health is wealth. Don't chase the money. So today, number seven, think tranquility, not happiness, nor fame, definitely not success. That is, think tranquility, not happiness, nor fame, not success. Tranquility. And in Buddhism, tranquility is one of the seven factors of awakening, or one of the seven precious treasures. And in this talk, we're going to work our way there. Anyone who's ever lived can say yes on some level to life and its ups and downs. And between the ongoing adjustments of living through a global pandemic, the less obvious impact of climate change and technology, rising tensions in Russia, Ukraine, China, Palestine, house prices, rent, stress, floods, busyness, everywhere, everyone, we are coming to terms with a new and rapidly changing world. Epictetus, the Greek philosopher, believed our greatest sufferings are born out of a failure to distinguish what is in our control and what is not. But do we put too much focus on an external world, one that is unpredictable and fragile by nature, while too often neglecting our internal one, one which just might need more attention and care than ever before? Because it is easier now than ever to distract ourselves from, from what is uncomfortable and to run away from our suffering. Our fast-paced, modern, uber-connected, disconnected world, which can easily turn human beings into consumers, community into competition, purpose into profit, it preys on the lost and distracted. Well, it helps create the lost and distracted. Buddhist monk and Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh had great faith in the healing power of simply stopping. To pause, to take a meaningful time out to assess if what we are wanting and how we are living is actually helping us to live an engaged, connected and meaningful life. Stopping to see if we are constructing a life that is worth living. Stopping to ponder, to reflect, to ask questions, to examine our choices, our habits and our day-to-day -day life. Greek philosopher Socrates, arguably the most famous asker of questions, said an unexamined life is not worth living. And he compared living without thinking to practicing pottery without any real technical know-how. You wouldn't expect to create a great pot. So why do we think that the far more complicated task of one's entire life could be undertaken without enough deep thought and serious reflection, without enough stopping, pausing, and reflecting? In fact, it was this exact question which had a significant influence on changing the direction of my life. My brother posed it to me in an email while encouraging me to visit him in Thich Nhat Hanh's Plum Village Practice Centre in France. He wrote, When in your life have you ever really stopped? When have you stopped and asked the question, what is important in my life? And in fact, before I made it to Plum Village, the reason I was probably so unfulfilled and so unsatisfied was that I never stopped. I never asked any questions beyond the superficial and mundane, the boring and the typical. I had made my life purely an external thing and that can leave us always scratching on the surface and never never far beyond it and this internal external conflict highlighted so succinctly by Epictetus and only and only further amplified by my lack of thorough examination is so clear when I compare two of my biggest overseas adventures one 
in an old 1983 Bedford with three friends, friends surfing down the coast of Europe into Africa for 12 months, and the other three months living in that old rundown hut in the forest of the Mindfulness Practice Centre. The hut was like, like the Bedford with no wheels. No wheels to simply steer away from the unpleasant. Swiss psychiatrist Carl Jung said suffering comes from our failure to understand and feel the unseen and unheard parts of our psyches. When we're always running and moving from one task or place to another, grabbing our phones or turning on our TVs every time we have a moment of idleness or discomfort, or we never get to stop and really explore our lives. And maybe the best exploration happens when we aren't moving at all. And perhaps this is the birthplace of contentment and tranquility. See, we're edging closer to that. We see this process, this interdependence, and we see how everything connects to everything else. Because life is hard, and maybe being human means knowing how to meet those hard parts and find peace. For whatever we are experiencing in the present moment is our life. If it is boredom, what can I learn from this boredom? Loneliness, despair, anger, restlessness, worrying, and the rest are telling us something about our relationship to life. Distracting and avoiding them only make them more tenacious. Poet von Goethe said, Plunge boldly into the thick of life and seize it where you will. It is always interesting. And I love that because we see life as interesting and not perfect. Not good or bad. Interesting. We aren't always so so keen on changing things to suit us. Stories, ideas, events. We soften the idea of more, better. And I'll come to that more um, as this talk progresses. And maybe our lives can become more enjoyable and peaceful when being content with not knowing, without always fighting to make things perfect, better, more. Knowing everything, or thinking we do, can stifle our curiosity and then ironically limit our possibilities. This, this curiosity, this subtle peacefulness in being more playful with life rather than a rigid control, can take our lives from yet another goal always serious and one-dimensional, to something closer to a piece of art, interesting and open, both of which act to bring us closer to life and the beauty of it. That is nice, and we are closing in on tranquility and peace even more. Aristotle said, knowing yourself is the beginning of all wisdom. And perhaps it is this wisdom that teaches us to take greater responsibility, greater responsibility for our choices, so we become less a product of our environment and more a creator of it. This knowing yourself is so fundamentally important in ensuring we just don't fall prey to the bombardment of outside noise that is almost endless in our modern lives. It is crucial so we aren't just pushed and pulled in all directions by clever marketing tactics by big business, politicians, and biased media. The Greek philosophers proclaimed the most important teaching is know thyself. But how? How? We can only truly know someone by spending a considerable amount of time with them, right? And this is just as true for ourselves. But when was the last time we spent a lot of time by ourselves without our friends, our phone, our iPad, or some other form of entertainment? These entertainments have become covers. Covers so we never actually have to feel how we feel. We buy, we eat, we go on holidays to merely continue the distraction, running away yet again from the very first sign of the slightest bit of possible discomfort. In each moment... It is fascinating to observe just how many choices we are making. And it is these choices that shape our lives, our character, our capacities. And in order to find peace inside ourselves, we need to be 
need to be able to become more aware of what our typical distractions are, not to let them have power over us and then really explore what it is we feel. In doing so, we can become the agents in our decision-making and not leave it up to predatory companies and politicians eager to make another buck. This is how we get closer to knowing, knowing ourselves and closer to contentment and closer to, to being a rebel because content people not, not lured into the buying stuff they don't need is truly powerful. They are truly powerful. So we need to get, get to know ourselves. We need to because with limited time, busy and tired, it is so easy to be lured into the buy my happiness culture in the pursuit of feeling good quickly. But this can become yet another type of grasping, a reaching out, a pushing away. And when we don't feel good, or when we always yearn for a safety or a comfort, well, we just tend to grasp even more, even tighter. And when we grasp so tightly for something, well, we leave very little room for anything else. This type of reaching leads to only more distraction, more distraction. And I've found again and again that distraction and addiction are like partners in crime. And sooner or later, if we avoid and cover, run and hide, we will suffer much more than we have to. And I mean, we are always going to suffer. Being human means that things will go wrong, but a leaning to simply distracting ourselves over and over again and again ironically only acts to amplify the suffering. I want to quickly share a passage. I was just reading one of my favorite books, Bertrand Russell's The Conquest of Happiness, and I came across this little little um, few paragraphs that I want to share and I'm just opening up the book now. So Brussels says, The capacity to endure a more or less monotonous life is one which should be acquired in childhood. Modern parents are greatly to blame in this respect. They provide their children with far too many passive amusements, such as shows and good things to eat, and they do not realise the importance to a child of having one day like another, except, of course, for somewhat rare occasions. The pleasures of childhood should be in the main such as the child extracts from his environment by means of some effort and inventiveness. Pleasures which are exciting and at the same time involve no physical exertion, such, for example, as the theatre, should occur very rarely. The excitement is in the nature of a drug, of which more and more will come to be required, and the physical passivity during the excitement is contrary to instinct. A child develops best when, like a young plant, he is left undisturbed in the same soil. Too much travel, too much variety of impressions are not good for the young and cause them as they grow up to become incapable of enduring fruitful monotony. Bertrand Russell there. But let's be real. Why would anyone be encouraged to sit in monotony, to not chase excitement, to explore their inner worlds and examine their lives when often we are told to chase other things? when it is not really that valued in our modern world or when it can't so easily be shared on social media. Why not just buy another thing online at a click of a button when it makes us feel good? Why not just keep out pumping out huge hours at the office so you can tell your buddies you are really busy and let them give you those modern world pats on the back? Hey, you can even post your hard work on LinkedIn. Well, this is the thing that Big Tony Robbins won't tell you because it won't make him any more money. And it is no good to a consumer capitalist culture that preys, well, no, creates every weakness for them to exploit at a cost. You won't hear Jordan Peterson preaching this either because 
It's something that unwell people never experience. Sorry, Jordan. And it is that the beauty found in the peace and contentment, a peace from not always desiring, not always yearning, not always wanting more, better, different, is far more enriching and far more satisfying than any feeling we get from actually acquiring something, even from achieving something. This is the tranquility that is one of the seven factors of awakening and one of the seven precious treasures in Buddhism. This is the ataraxia that Epicurus was so interested in. One leaves us always wanting more and always living from a place of lack and also keeps us really tired. One leaves us in an endless cycle that once we get something, we just set off almost immediately trying to get something else. A cycle that if we aren't careful, we'll spend our whole life in, aiming to live up to the stories that we've been told from the people who merely believe them and pass them down. If you don't think for yourself, you'll stay in this cycle until about three minutes before you die when you realize you wasted your whole life failing to try anything different. While on the other side, well, that leaves us full of the joy, peace, calm, and contentment that the other will always be seeking. A mind of clarity and awareness allows us to act in ways that better represent our true feelings, rather than acting out of fear or emotions that we cannot really understand. We become less dependent on external sources to make us happy, and that is powerful. That is life-changing. We understand the effects of superficial desires and can see that satisfying our desires only ever offer short-term relief. And relief is nice, it is, but it can be like a band-aid, a band-aid that we need again and again, a pseudo-solution so we can keep on doing all the things that cause the problems in the first place. And let's be honest, not, not that I haven't been, but these band-aids are everywhere in 2023. Obvious ones like Big Pharma, so we can pop a pill and keep doing without changing, and less obvious ones like some meditation apps and corporate well-being programs designed for a little relief and then, well, and then straight back to doing. Never going deep enough, never long enough, another form of entertainment, another distraction. We don't aim to transform anything to provide alternatives, possibilities. We do just enough, yet again, so we can get back to making more money. German philosopher Heidegger, Psychiatrist Irving Illum and, and elements of Buddhism talk about two modes of existence. Everyday mode, where we turn towards quickly fading distractions like physical appearance and possessions, all those things I've been mentioning, that cycle we just spoke about. And ontological mode, where we can grapple with deeper questions encompassing meaning and self-fulfillment. And I see in my life, being absorbed entirely in my surroundings, that everyday mode, led me to just falling prey to outside noise and only took me further away from constructing what resembled an authentic life. And our modern world makes cultivating authenticity so much more difficult, but so much more important. You just have to turn on your TV, open up your phone, walk down the street to be bombarded by an abundance of role play stories that tell us that we need to be always something more, better, different. Trillion dollar industries are built on this idea that we always need to be bettering ourselves and others. What should one do? Well, I'm not so sure. But in the least, finding contentment and joy right now, wherever you are, is probably a wise thing. For if we are always racing ahead, improving, competing, when do we ever get beyond merely doing? When do we ever stop? And interestingly, in many indigenous tribes, they saw competition outside of a few certain realms as a sign of mental ill health. And today, well, 
where doesn't competition extend to? And you can make a clear case for our current system, the capitalist system hyped up by the neoliberal assault, which started somewhere in the 70s, one of it praises individualistic qualities, a dog-eat-dog -dog world, consumerism, material wealth and the like, makes it increasingly difficult to stop competing in all areas of our lives and in turn makes it even more difficult to create something that resembles a deep and authentic meaning. Or, as meaning, like so many other things, merely become commoditized. And maybe one of the great tragedies, tragedies, and one that stems firmly in the way of experiencing tranquility, peace, and contentment, and many other things like creative expression, cooperation, imagination, community, brotherhood, sisterhood, is our addiction to competition. One of my great friends was a, a beach volleyball player in hotspots like Santa Monica, Santa Barbara, and Santa Cruz in California way back, way back in the day, way back when beach volleyball was more commonly known as keeping the ball in the air. Before it was turned from a game into a business, before sport was a capitalistic enterprise with a business model and marketing and sales, and they transformed it into another form of entertainment with the primary purpose of making a financial return. Along the way, turning brothers and sisters and friends and families into consumers and products. We shifted from wanting to keep the ball in the air, where our fun and flow and creative expression was dependent on our friends on the other side of the net, to wanting to win at all costs, even if we have no fun and experiencing no joy along the way. It seems strange that the great majority would prefer winning off a serve rather than being a part of something cool. This is the type of behavior that would lead elders of indigenous communities to pull the competitors aside, deeply concerned for their poor mental health. Well, not anymore. What was once a chance to express yourself, to share goals, to teach lessons, etc., is now corrupted and turned into rules and regulations so people can make money. I watched a, a few episodes of the tennis documentary Breakpoint on Netflix. And what was clear to me was how most of the players are so underdeveloped and immature, emotionally and mentally. How selfish, self-absorbed and, and uh, kind of unwell. I see them as really big strugglers in life, all because maybe since they were five, they've learnt the principles of competition and winning. And very rarely the more important components of self-expression, teamwork, cooperation, ethics and love. Competition and its old friend comparison are two vital ingredients for living a small, lackluster life. There is no contentment and tranquility in comparison. But when we know who we are and what we want, we can feel when something is important and perhaps that becomes a kind of guiding light that ignites. But it only ignites when we've really given ourselves the time and space to explore to the point that we can trust in our sense of self enough to let it lead the way. And we may struggle to find peace in our busy lives if we don't prioritize it. It's a clash of two contrasting worlds and typically the louder, faster, more common one will prevail. When we can enjoy each simple moment, it becomes such an empowering experience. It heightens our senses. We see more, hear more and feel more. And all of life's seemingly insignificant things become significant. And yet, it is easy to let all the business of our modern lives become stress and anxiety. But I've found over and over that if we train our attention and take more responsibility for it, we become less dispersed and wake up to all moments of our lives. 
What if we paid attention? We may be sharing a lovely conversation with a dear friend and at the same time notice the mind thinking about what we are eating for dinner after. And yes, that is the nature of the busy mind, but this not only zaps our zest and energy, but prevents us from truly hearing our friend and thus truly being a friend. In every moment, we have a choice. And I've found that aliveness, that life doesn't start on the edge of a cliff or, or in a van driving around Europe, and it's not always productivity and action, but it is found in the silence, the conversation, the discomfort, and the monotony that Russell wrote about. The trick is choosing to be present, to wake up, to reaffirm our presence when it would be so much easier to ruminate and lose ourselves in fantasy. Many studies show that a wandering mind is an unhappy mind, and an unhappy mind, well, that will more than likely lead to an unhappy life. And maybe this is why we learn mindfulness, and mindfulness is alongside tranquility and the seven factors of awakening. As Tignan Hart would say, so we can be good gardeners, so we can develop the capacity to sow the seeds, water the flowers, and allow the sun to shine in a way that will make our garden beautiful. Recognizing the seeds of anger, competition, fear, infatuation, and cultivating what we value, joy, peace, tranquility. And of course, why we learn mindfulness and meditation doesn't end there. Daniel Goleman and his work on the science of meditation shows that meditators are less reactive to stress. They recover from peak stress to calm faster, and they have less inflammation as a result. And that's a huge factor in many long-term chronic diseases. And we see again and again that everything, health, technology, relationships, society, culture, consumerism, mental health, happiness, competition, connects to everything else. And we cannot continue to look at things as if they appear in isolation. And among the many other benefits of meditation are us and them thinking diminishes. We become more caring, more generous, and more present for others suffering without tuning out. Confucius said, life is simple, but we insist on making it complicated. One of the best ways we make things complicated is by believing capitalist stories that our lives will be better and more fulfilling the more we succeed. The more stuff we buy, the more things we own, the bigger our ceilings, professionally and at home. But all this stuff just works to add tension, friction, pressure, a slight unease at all times of the day. This is like the traffic light analogy in polyvagal theory. We become stuck in the yellow light most of our lives. We become accustomed to feeling to a feeling of pressure, a constant nagging about what needs to be done next. And this might be slight, but it is enough, as Pharrell would say, to lead us on a life of quiet desperation. We rarely sit in green, where we are open, creative, fresh, invigorated, full of zest and list. And that's another thing. Our language has adjusted too. We don't hear the word list much. Mainly its counterpart, listless. Our modern world has worked to push its narrative of more and more material wealth while making us listless. And I feel that the yellow light might be a worse place to be than the red. Because at least in the red you feel hopeless and might be kicked into action. Yellow, well, you're simply living the status quo. And stress and busyness is a good thing. Or so they say in the West. And the West is God. In the East, they have a word called Dukkha. It is a Pali word and is most often translated as pain, suffering, stress, or disease. Stress is suffering. It is disease. 
Don't believe me? Live a stressed life for a significant period and see what disease you get. It's a fun game to play, right? In the West, they try to change the ending by saying live a stressed life and win heaps of big, shiny toys. And yes, you very well may get them, but then most likely a disease will follow, and then that will quickly make all your nice things redundant. Our world is an economic one. The most common political talking point is economics. But the real aim of a healthy system should be maximum well-being from the least amount of consumption and time. This is true for our individual lives too. If you have to work a heap to reach a level of well-being, then you are doing it wrong and you need to make a change. All our current philosophies like GDP, GNP, standing of living, all that generous general status quo indicate that greater consumption must mean greater wealth. So then we see greater consumption as a good thing when it is completely out of whack. We should be valuing an individual on his ability to maximize his or her well-being with the least amount of consumption and time because those are the ones who are living life well. Eric Fromm, and I've been a bit addicted to the Eric Fromm's books from you know to have or to be, uh, The Art of Loving, um, so many of his cool books at the moment, and he wrote that in the sphere of material things, giving means being rich. Not he who has much is rich, but he who gives much. The hoarder who is anxiously worried about losing something is, psychologically speaking, the poor, impoverished man, regardless of how much he has. Whoever is capable of giving himself is rich. As a society, we need a shift. As individuals, we do too, especially if we want to live a truly rich, meaningful and zesty life. We need to shift away from consumerism and materialism, shift away from finding identity and status in financial wealth, in job titles, in the accumulation of things you own, shift from independence to interdependence, competition to to cooperation and community, hoarding to giving, as Fromm says, shift from adoring and valuing loud attention-seeking narcissists like Trump, Joe Rogan and Jordan Peterson, to elders and wisdom keepers and nice people like David Suzuki, Thich Nhat Hanh and Stan Grant. We need to shift from disconnection to connection, shift from distraction and easy entertainments and covers and busyness to quietude and presence and concentration, shift from rigidness and bias to playfulness and aliveness, shift from being products and consumers to people, shift from technology to humanness, shift to tranquility and contentment, and I have enough. We need to reconnect to the love of nature, of play, of experience, of loving life, not merely in finding distraction and avoidance in shopping and the TV. Until joy, which is another of the seven factors of awakening, comes from adventure, experience, nature, and real human connection, not merely in buying things, then we will see damning mental health stats and a worsening climate crisis. I have enough. Do the ones that flourish the most live by that mantra? Are they happiest? The ones with the least desires. The ones who take pleasure in the things that are refined, in noble sensibilities, like washing the dishes, swimming in a river, paddling down one. They don't do these things to be healthier, richer, better for identity or status, but simply because they feel nice, because they enjoy them. 
They aren't just constantly thinking about themselves. They aren't always living in the then. When we do things for another reason, to be fitter, healthier, sexier, richer, smarter, or to be appear, appear to be those things, we always live in the then. And then we will never flourish and more likely just suffer. Flourishing or eudaimonia are only found in the here and now. The fundamentals of life are here and now. But let's face it, the present moment is most of the time quite dull and unsatisfactory. But until you make peace of that without running to the more exciting thing, you may not find that deep green traffic light. We learn to not become lost in the story. And perhaps the TV and the dishwasher are life's great tragedies. We rush, rush through to get to the better, more entertaining thing. The epidemic of misery is driven and perpetuated by a consumerist mentality. Would someone go into a large shopping center and spend their time and money shopping if they were really happy? Well, perhaps not. A human being is for friends and family, to help them suffer less. If you live your whole life in the then, then, then you will never be content. In the West, becoming is probably the major cause of suffering. Becoming someone, becoming important, becoming better. Just walk down the hill with no earphones. Play with the kids without your phone. Have a nap. Make a day slow. Don't rush. Make a day feel like a year. Forget the TV and the news. Forget your age. Carve out some beauty within the monotony of the ordinary. This is the Sutter Faction Podcast. I'm Evan Sutter. See you soon. Subscribe and let's chat soon. Absolute pleasure. Thank you very much.